This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, is getting back to basics, re-energizing its mission of protecting human health and the environment. It's about ensuring future generations inherit a cleaner, healthier environment that supports a thriving economy. The nation has made great progress in making rivers and lakes safer for swimming and boating, reducing the smog that clouded city skies cleaning up lands that were once used as hidden chemical dumps, and providing Americans greater access to information on chemical safety. However, more needs to be done. How is EPA getting back to basics? What are EPA's key strategic priorities? And how is EPA changing the way it does business? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Also joining me from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. Henry, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Kirsten, thank you for coming back. My pleasure. So before we get into specifics, um, could you provide us with an overview of the history and evolving mission of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA? When was it created and how has its mission evolved to date? So uh, the EPA is created as a result of a growing concern about some environmental um, issues that were going on in the country um, rivers on Fire being a good example of that. Um, it was a river in Cleveland. I don't remember the exact name of it. But uh, but there was just this growing concern. Uh, and uh, it's it's interesting to me um, as a Republican uh, that the agency actually was born in a Republican administration under President Nixon. And at the time, there was just this growing concern about environmental issues. Um, they were being dealt with uh, in various agencies, but but kind of in a piecemeal approach. Uh, so there was a uh, an intent and a desire uh, with the president working with Congress to establish the agency and then at the same time to establish some some really um, um, somewhat innovative means in which to regulate uh, public health and the environment. So it was the creation of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act uh, in particular uh, that really uh, focused the agency's efforts in those areas that um, the public was really starting to um, experience uh, some – a real need for someone to step in, for the government to step in uh, and to do something about it. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about um, with such a critical mission, how is the agency organized? So the agency uh, is basically organized um, by the authorizing statutes. Okay. Uh, so we have national programs around the Clean Water Act, uh, Clean Air Act, uh, what we call the Resource Conservation Recovery Act or otherwise known as RICRA. 
uh, and um, uh, so basically it's safe safe from I mean, uh, from a layman's point of view it's really uh, around safe water which include clean water uh, surface waters like rivers and streams um, safe drinking water uh, and then clean air making sure that we meet ambient air quality standards that we set uh, and then clean land uh, so making sure that all of our wastes are disposed of properly uh, responding to emergencies, um, hurricanes being the most recent example of that, and wildfires on the West Coast, and then uh, safe chemicals. So those are our core functions, but we have some some kind of support-related re- functions that we perform as well. Uh, the best example of that is our Office of Research and Development. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically the research arm of, of EPA. It's one of those things that that we do as an organization that is not delegated to the states, that is not given to the states to implement on EPA's behalf. So we really do uh, spend a lot of our uh, attention uh, and time on uh, focusing on those uh, new chemicals, those new contaminants that we find in the environment and making sure that we're aware of that of its existence, how to measure it, how to monitor it, um, and then setting appropriate health standards associated with them. Great. So now that you've provided us a sense of the larger EPA organization, can you tell us a bit more about your area and specific role at EPA as chief of operations? Certainly. So it's a fairly new role uh, within uh, EPA. It has been uh, set forth in some uh, fairly recent legislation that requires each agency to have a COO, a chief of operations. My primary responsibility is to make sure that the agency is running as effectively, as efficiently as possible. Uh, what I found uh, when I arrived at EPA was that there really was a lack of a system that would allow me to do my job well. So for the first seven months that I've been here, I have been uh, working on the deployment of an intentional management system based upon uh, lean principles. So over the course of the last seven months, uh, we've been uh, choosing the things that we're going to measure as an organization, those things that are important to the administrator, but also those other things that we need to keep track of to make sure that as we are getting better in certain areas that we're not uh, falling behind in in other other important areas at the same time. So uh, when working on those those things we want to measure on a much more frequent basis than EPA is comfortable with or been is uh, done in the past. Uh, so uh, we're talking about measuring things on a monthly basis rather than a semi-annual or annual basis. Uh, and these are not just outcome-oriented measures, although we are talking about outcome-oriented measures like how we measure clean air and clean water and safe drinking water and clean, clean chemicals and clean land. But what are the things that we need to do as an organization to make sure those things are happening, to make sure that we're getting the outcomes that the American public expects from us on doing our, day, our day-to-day work? Uh, so uh, at the outset, it's just a matter of setting up that system. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, we'll be uh, using that system to manage the agency. We're already starting to do that. So each program uh, now has a scorecard that they submit to me on a monthly basis that contains all of the measures that they're going to be reviewing on a monthly basis to make sure they're making progress towards uh, meeting their part of our mission. Uh, and they're also holding business reviews um, on a monthly basis. They sit around a table and they review those measures to make sure they're meeting the targets that have been set for those measures and that they haven't been met, that they're doing something about it. Um, and that's done through a report that's submitted to me, a plan or a report that's submitted to me that outlines the things that they're going to do in order to get back on track to meeting that target that they have set that's associated with their part of meeting EPA's mission. So. 
you know, Henry, putting that operational capacity in place and, and changing the culture, it's got to be fraught with some challenges. So I was wondering, could you maybe tell, tell us what your top three management challenges are and how have you sought to address those? Yeah, I don't know if, that I, if I have a, a top three, but one of the, the biggest challenges that uh, EPA faces is identifying the owners of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, with such a large organization uh, and with it, such a complex mission, um, it's often difficult to identify the person, the leader, who's responsible for a given process. We'll take an example, um, uh, the Superfund process. Uh, so the Superfund process, Superfund was set, set in place by Congress to provide a fund uh, to clean up sites for which there was not a viable, responsible party that could be found in order to clean up the site, basically historically contaminated sites. It's a very complex process that takes, you know, doesn't take months or years, usually it takes decades in order to get a site uh, from identification of a need for cleanup to when it's cleaned up and ready for uh, its anticipated uh, use. Finding a person that's responsible for not only a given uh, site, but also for their process in general has been, has been a challenge. Uh, the other challenge uh, really has been getting the agency to think about uh, measurement on a more frequent basis. They're uh, used to measuring on a annual or at most a semi-annual basis. Uh, I mean, the way that I've, I view that uh, as an issue is that uh, when we measure something on an annual or semi-annual basis, we have one, if, if at most two times uh, a year, an opportunity to make course corrections. If we are measuring what we do on a monthly basis, then we have 12, to- 12 opportunities a year to uh, make changes. And of course, if we do it weekly, we have 52 opportunities a year uh, to make changes. So uh, getting uh, the agency comfortable with this idea that they will be monitoring uh, their operations, monitoring the work that they do on a more frequent basis has been such somewhat of a challenge because um, they're not used to it. And those measurements aren't in place. The means by measuring them um, aren't in place. And then that's th- that, that brings me to the, the third uh, major challenge. Um, this is a uh, a challenge for any uh, government enterprise, and that is how do we measure our success? Because at its core, any management system is about measuring the success and mo- and managing to the success of the organization. Uh, in the government context, uh, what we c- what we could be measuring uh, to to evaluate our success is almost infinitely complex. Uh, whereas uh, the private sector uh, is able to monitor their success by their bottom line, their uh, the profits and losses. How do you measure the profits and losses of a government organization? Um, because what we do is much more than uh, our bottom line. Uh, for the EPA, our, our, our mission is about protecting public health and the environment. So we need to find a way of measuring our success with respect to protecting public health and the environment. And it's not as easy as it sounds. We're, we're doing our best uh, to try to figure out where those, those opportunities exist and where we can measure outcomes. But a lot of those outcomes, uh, because of the nature of our work, don't change very frequently. Uh, so it's hard for us to see in our day-to-day activities how we're making influence or influencing uh, the outcomes that are, are important. A great example of that is uh, clean air. Uh, so the way we've chosen to measure clean air is by the number of non-attainment areas in the country. A non-attainment area is an area uh, that is not meeting a national ambient air quality standard. So something like lead, 
is a national ambient air quality standard. Uh, so if there's a part of the country that's not beating uh, the lead standard, then that is uh, something that we're counting uh, as part of our measurement. So we currently have uh, 166 areas of this country that are not meeting the national ambient air quality standards. So we've set a goal for ourselves of reducing that number to 101 by 2022. So we want to go from 166 non-attainment areas to 101 non-attainment areas over the next five years. So because those non-attainment areas are challenging uh, in order to reverse uh, the pollution that's causing them, we need to find ways of measuring our daily, weekly, and monthly activities so that we can monitor our progress towards meeting those, those goals that aren't changed or aren't, aren't, aren't moving um, as often uh, as monthly. So that's, that's really a challenge for us is identifying uh, those things that we want to measure as being important and, and are to evaluate the success of our organization, but then converting them into the things that we can measure on a, on a monthly or even more frequent basis. Yeah, so you've really described many of the challenges as you're moving to this new operational environment. And one other question kind of here would be, you know, has anything really surprised you in your current role as you've been pushing this new paradigm? Um, I don't know if it's, a, if it's surprising to me, but it's been um, incredibly rewarding for me to work with the career staff at EPA who – um, are all there because they believe uh, in EPA's really important mission. And their willingness to uh, listen and their willingness to try to uh, support the work that I'm, I've been brought here to do. Uh, so it really has been uh, something that I, I wasn't expecting. I was expecting a lot of resistance, reluctance uh, to change. Um, and there is, there is some of that in the agency, of course. Uh, but by and large, they're all willing to work with me and work with this administration, identifying a path forward and moving forward towards a, a means by which we can achieve our mission um, while external pressures are being put on us uh, to get smaller as an organization. So shifting gears a little bit in terms of just your career, you've come to Washington, D.C., you're with EPA, Chief of Operations. You know, tell our listeners a little bit about your career path. You know, where you've been, how did you get here, what did you take in as kind of some of the most valuable experience bringing to the job? Sure. So uh, I am a uh, lifelong uh, environmental uh, professional. So I have an engineering degree in hydrology from the University of Arizona. Uh, I am a graduate of Lewis and Clark Law School uh, in Portland, Oregon. That's widely regarded as being the best environmental law school in the country. Uh, so uh, very early on in my career, I had developed a passion for environmental protection. And not only that, I had always intended to and hoped to work in government. I had done a few internships while in college and law school and really I developed an appreciation for public service uh, and for the work that public servants uh, performed on behalf of the country. Uh, immediately after law school, I went to work for the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. I was there for 18 years. I left a couple of times to do some legal work on behalf of the state. But uh, for the most part, I was a career-long uh, environmental professional in the Department of Environmental Quality. I ultimately became uh, the director and was the director there for five years. I became the director at the height of the recession. This was when I uh, was really forced to try to find a way of becoming more efficient uh, as an organization 
And so I started looking at uh, what tools were out there, uh, what principles could I adopt as an organization operationally to become as effective uh, in delivering our mission outcomes as, as, as we were uh, before we were reduced by uh, about 30%. We saw that we could see amazing results from Lean. You know, all Lean is about is maximizing value and eliminating waste. Uh, what you'll find in any process is, you know, 70, 80 percent of the time it takes to perform a process is spent um, just waiting on some other part of the, the process to open up or for um, an approval to be made or for um, – some other decision to be made. Uh, and so uh, it's really all about eliminating waste. So given your background, both state and now in the federal space, what makes an effective leader? What qualities? So uh, to me, um, it all begins with uh, um, a passion for uh, performance, process, and people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, a leader, in my in my view, has to be passionate about the performance of whatever part of the organization they've been a- asked to lead. They have to be constantly looking for opportunities to uh, measure uh, the effectiveness of their organization. They also have to to realize that there's a process that leads to performance, and when performance is not achieved, that the first thing they look to is process and not people. A bad leader, in my view, uh, first reaction to a performance problem is to look for someone to blame. Um, and there certainly are situations where a person is the reason for bad performance, but that's very rarely the case. Most often when performance is not being achieved, it's because there's a broken process. Um, either the process isn't designed well or adherence to the process is not occurring. Uh, so they have to have a real passion for for process, identifying what the process is that they're responsible for, the steps associated with that process, and how they're going to visually manage uh, that process to make sure that uh, both the process is flowing as, as, as it's supposed to, but also that it's performing um, like it's supposed to as well. And then lastly, um, it's a passion for people. Uh, and when I say a passion for people, it's a passion for people development. Um, Good leaders are about humble inquiry um, and helping their employees um, develop as employees, develop as as professionals, and not about solving their problems for them or becoming the pillar of knowledge that their employees come to uh, in order to solve problems uh, for them. Uh, So it's about developing their skills, developing their ability to solve problems uh, for themselves um, and helping them. Um, develop that capability uh, over time. What are EPA's key strategic priorities? We will ask Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is artificial intelligence, AI, and how has it evolved? What challenges does AI present? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Professor James Hendler, co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity, on the next Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA. My co-host today from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. Henry, the EPA's mission, as you pointed out in our previous segment, was is protecting human health and the environment. And, and uh, the latest agency strategic plan uh, really focuses on getting back to what Administrator Pruitt calls back to basics. And first off, would you elaborate on this agenda and specifically identify the three, I believe there's three, overarching goals that frame this agenda? Yes, the administrator uh, has made it uh, clear uh, that he wants the agency to, as he puts it, get back to basics. Uh, And what that means in in a nutshell is that uh, we need to, as an agency, get much, much better at those things that we clearly uh, were given the authority to do and the responsibility to do under the authorizing statutes, so under the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, uh, those various acts that were adopted in order to give EPA uh, its functions and give EPA its mission. What the administrator uh, has said, um, and I agree with, is that over time, uh, EPA has become um, much more focused on those areas in which there is some disagreement. Now, I'm not here to argue on one side or the other side of that disagreement, but there has been some disagreement about what EPA has the authority to do or not to do. Um, And what he has said is that rather than uh, arguing about those things and creating uh, a lot of uh, effort associated with those things that are on the margin, that we should go back to uh, seeing whether or not uh, we are doing those things that are clearly within our authority and clearly within our responsibility uh, and getting much, much better at those. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically reevaluating the effectiveness of EPA and carrying forward those, those very key core missionary uh, types of uh, activities. Okay. We, you know, we have a strategic plan, mm-hmm. uh, and that strategic plan uh, does have uh, three overarching goals. The rule of law and process. Okay. Uh, so uh, that really goes uh, back to kind of the back to basics approach of making sure that everything that we do is based on the rule of law, that everything is based upon an authorizing statute or authorizing rule. Uh, and then also process, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons I'm here. Yeah. The primary reason and I'm here is, is, the, is the, we'll talk about. the lean management system getting much, much better at the work that we do. Okay. So at its base, the strategic plan is about rule of law and process. But we're also talking um, a lot about, and the strategic plan talks a lot about, um, how do we do our work? Uh, And it's this renewed uh, acknowledgement of the relationship that we have with the states. And we call it cooperative federalism. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, the vast majority of the environmental work that's done in this country is done by the states. And it's been by design. 
Uh, Congress, when it created the various authorizing statutes, very clearly intended for the states to take on the lion's share of the responsibilities. That EPA would serve in a somewhat of an oversight function. And so what we're doing now, um, like a lot of other federal agencies, is going back and reviewing our current state of our relationship with the states um, and reevaluating that partnership to see what role we should be playing and what role the state should be playing. But why are we doing this? We're all doing this for the third goal, and that is our core mission, to uh, improve air quality, provide safe drinking water, uh, make sure their land are, that lands are clean and, and that the chemicals that exist in the marketplace uh, are safe. Uh, so uh, that's what our strategic, me- our strategic plan is about, uh, is just making sure that we're doing all the things that we need to do in order to support our core mission. Great. And so let's talk about air quality for a minute. And it is clearly under goal one, your core mission, deliver real results to provide Americans with clean air, water, and land. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what are your strategies to improve air quality? Also bring in the note of cooperative federalism. Um, what efforts are being pursued to pri- prioritize key activities that support attainment for the national ambient air quality standards? Sure. So yeah, that's a great example uh, of an area that uh, the administrator has uh, made a priority uh, for EPA. So what we've we've chosen to measure uh, as a, a means of determining whether or not we're being effective in carrying out our mission when it relates to air quality, is that we're going to reduce the number of non-attainment areas from 166 to 101. I mentioned that earlier. So as we also talked about earlier, that's not something that's that's we can go out and uh, do ourselves. That's not something that's an activity-based or activity, activity-oriented uh, measure. It's more of an outcome measure. Uh, so uh, we, we have gone back and we have taken a look at what are the things that we do um, as an organization uh, to uh, help improve air quality. Um, and the way the Clean Air Act is designed, uh, whenever there is a, an area that's in non-attainment, a state is required to submit to us a plan that describes how they are going to achieve attainment with the non-attainment s- standard. They're called State Implementation Plans, or SIPs. Uh, what we have found in going back and reviewing the process of uh, an air, air shed going from non-attainment to attainment uh, is that this state implementation plan uh, is at its core uh, the basis by which we will be able to achieve attainment. What we found is that we had a significant backlog of state implementation plans that had not been approved by EPA. So, so this was an area where we could perform actions or activities uh, associated with improving the overall process of going from non-attainment to attainment and acknowledging our role in that process as being the approver of those plans. Because we had a backlog, it gave us an opportunity to look at that process closer to see whether there are things that we could be doing to become more efficient in uh, approving those those processes. So we, we have been doing that. Um, as a matter of fact, we had a what we call a lean Kaizen blitz uh, where we bring a group of people in a room um, with a facilitator who knows uh, um, about all of the lean tools. And we uh, review the process and we uh, eliminate all of the steps in the process that don't add value to the process. Uh, and uh, at the end of the full week's worth of work, uh, we have what we call a future state. Uh, it's the future uh, state that we want to, to adopt and uh, use as part of that process. Uh, and 
when it's implemented, it should reduce um, not only the amount of time it takes for us to approve a plan, but also uh, to reduce the backlog of unapproved plans. Great. And so you've really dove down deep into kind of improvements and kind of the air program and operations, now shifting gears to water. The nation's water resources are kind of the lifeblood of our communities and supporting our economy and the way of life. How is EPA working to protect and sustain the nation's water systems and improve water infrastructure? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I'll start off with what we're measuring in order to evaluate our our success um, in achieving uh, those those goals. Um, we want to reduce the number of community water systems out of compliance with the Safe Drinking Water Act. Uh, we want to increase the non federal dollars leveraged by EPA's investment through grants and other uh, types of investments. And we want to reduce the number of square miles of watersheds that are not meeting surface water quality standards. Uh, So we believe that uh, through uh, the improvement of those three measures, we will be able to evaluate uh, whether or not we're being successful um, in achieving the goals that you mentioned. Uh, The fact matter is that you're absolutely correct that uh, the infrastructure uh, in this country um, as it relates to safe drinking water uh, and uh, clean surface water is um, in dire needs of attention. The means by which EPA can play a role in that is to identify uh, when those uh, infrastructure problems are leading to noncompliance with either surface water standards or safe drinking water standards uh, that we basically point out the areas in which that's happening and find solutions to uh, reducing those those instances of noncompliance, which could could mean you know additional investments in infrastructure, uh, which is where our grant pro- programs come in. Uh, the fact matters is that we have a number of long time existing uh, grant programs in our state revolving funds. Uh, we provide grant dollars to states, uh, who then turn them into uh, grants to safe drinking water and wastewater. Uh, facilities and owners. And so we want to find a way of making sure that those dollars are being used as effectively as possible and that they are leveraging um, non-federal investment. Uh, we want to be in a situation in a place where we're providing seed money uh, for invest- further investments that are being made by, by states uh, in other localities or even the private sector. We're also uh, implementing a new uh, program where we directly offer grants to wastewater uh, operators. Uh, uh, so it's through through all of those activities and through the, the way we're measuring our activities and outcomes that we hope that we will uh, find a way of uh, making sure that uh, the water that citizens of the, the United States are drinking is safe um, and that the waters they're swimming in uh, are safe as well. So we go from, you know, air, water, and, and to land, which is what I want to focus on. And you, you mentioned one of the top priorities for EPA is accelerating the progress around Superfund sites. Um, Henry, could you tell us more about this effort and your um, overall, how is EPA working to revitalize land and prevent contamination? So once again, um, and as you mentioned, our goals around uh, cleanup really are uh, focused on um, making contaminated sites ready for anticipated use. And what ready for anticipated use means uh, that we want to take contaminated sites uh, and put them back into the economic bloodstream. Uh, so uh, we're doing that in a, in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the administrator, uh, very um, soon after his arrival at EPA, uh, created a task force that was specifically charged with coming up with recommendations to improve the Superfund process. 
to improve that process where we clean up the, the most contaminated sites in the country. So there were a number of recommendations that had come from that, from that work that are currently being uh, managed and currently being implemented. So that's, that's just one example of the work that we're doing. Uh, another example is that we're treating um, these processes just like any other process uh, in, at EPA. Uh, so we're performing the same types of process improvement events uh, that we've performed for, I mentioned, the state implementation plan process. We're doing the same thing uh, for the cleanup process. So, you know, getting back to basics, taking that 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 agenda, the strategic agenda, getting back to basics, in one way what you need to do is implement what Congress dictates for you to do, and, and in particular around chemicals and pesticides. I'm talking about the the Frank um, Lautenberg Chemical Safety Act of 20, uh, the 21st Century Act. Would you tell us more about what's going on, in this, and more particularly, what is the agency doing to implement the requirements of this act? Yeah, so uh, we start off by saying that the act uh, laid out some very aggressive timeframes uh, for EPA to take action on things like new chemicals. Um, it also had required us to eliminate some backlogs of some existing chemical reviews that we that we have. As as you can see from our strategic plan, we have committed to meeting those legal deadlines. As a matter of fact, uh, that's a, a overarching uh, goal of the agency uh, is to um, meet all of our legal obligations. You know, as a as a regulating or as a as a regulator, uh, it was. Surprising to me uh, that EPA uh, did not have a systematic way of keeping track of all of our legal our legal obligations, and we do a pretty good job of keeping track of the legal obligations uh, that have been placed upon those that we regulate. But a lot of those authorizing statutes, including the one we were just talking about, uh, set legal obligations or legal deadlines for us to take action. And when I arrived, we really had no uh, systematic means of keeping track of those legal deadlines, which is somewhat ironic mm-hmm. um, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is that is one of the initiatives. It's one of the initiatives that we've put in place. And I mean, you hear regularly about, and I was reading just just this the other day about how uh, EPA uh, has been sued um, over and over again um, for failing to meet various legal obligations and mostly timeliness mm-hmm. obligations. Um, and those are very difficult lawsuits to defend because if we had a deadline and we missed the deadline, the, the only question is what should the remedy be? Yeah. Um, doesn't mean that we won't fight about that for hours, weeks, months, years. Um, and to me, that's that's unfortunate because it takes away from EPA performing. It's that's very important. Exactly right. So every, every moment that we spend in a courtroom um, uh, defending – uh, the fact that we have failed to meet a de- legal deadline is, uh, you know, it's a minute that we could be spending on um, going after uh, a bad actor um, who has failed to meet their legal obligation under an authorizing statute. So our chemical safety program is just one example of where we have this renewed um, commitment to meeting our legal deadlines and putting together, putting those systems in place, just like the regulated community, just like we expect the regulated community to have in place those systems to make sure they're meeting their legal obligations under the, the same authorizing statutes that we're now subject to some um, legal legal deadlines and some obligations. So um, we're getting much better at that. Um, our goal is uh, to meet all of our legal deadlines by 2022. And as surprising as it may sound, that's going to be a daunting task. How is EPA changing the way it does business? We will ask Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA, when our conversation continues 
on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA. My co-host today from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. All right, Henry. So you mentioned earlier um, the concept of cooperative federalism. You kind of defined it for us. What I want to do is dig a little deeper. And how is this way of approaching the states and localities and the tribes, how is it a departure from the one-size-fits-all regulatory framework? And what are some of the key initiatives you're pursuing or the EPA is pursuing to realize this vision of cooperative federalism? Yeah, so um, maybe I start off by saying uh, what cooperative federalism is at its core. Mm -hmm. Cooperative federalism is um, recognizing that the work, the environmental work that we do is uh, performed in partnership uh, with the states and local localities um, and to some degree with the tribes. That this isn't all about uh, EPA doing everything. It just simply would be impossible for EPA to do everything. And I think that when Congress adopted the various authorizing statutes, it specifically recognized that there was a role for EPA to play and a role for the states to play in environmental protection. So cooperative federalism at its core is just acknowledging that this is a shared responsibility. Then it's about, you know, how do we define those roles? How do we define EPA's role versus the state's roles uh, in carrying out uh, these very important uh, obligations? Uh, and what we, we found is that when, when I arrived at EPA and started talking to the various uh, regional offices uh, and uh, program offices about you know, how do we manage our relationship with the states? Uh, what I found was is that there wasn't a single answer to that question. That uh, the program certainly had their view of how EPA uh, should be overseeing states' work. Uh, the regional offices felt like they had um, 
well, they had a different way of looking at um, how they were overseeing the states and what the relationship with the states should be. So there really was a lack of a comprehensive system uh, for managing the relationship with the states. Now, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't we shouldn't treat states differently based upon um, their uh, performance, based upon their expertise, based upon their their resources, based upon their needs. That's that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that there was no systematic way of evaluating how we should be deploying our resources to support EP or support the state's activities. Um, what we found was that um, it it varied. It varied from um, literally from state to state. Uh, each state's experience with EPA and each state's experience with the relationship with EPA was different. Um, having been a former state director, I could uh, put myself back in my shoes uh, when I was in Arizona and had my own stories to tell about how I knew I was being treated, my state was being treated differently than our neighbors to the West, California, because of uh, various Various things on various topics, the, 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 and that's not what's important. What's important is that uh, there was a differentiation in treatment based upon factors that were not, let's say, they weren't um, objective. I should say. Great, and you know, you've spent a lot of time now talking about the implementation of the lean management system and how it's used to improve processes that result in measured outcomes. Case in point, you talked a little bit about Superfund remediation processes. Now, kind of looking forward, how would you use lean to prevent future type of um, crises? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question, and this really goes to the difference between how we're using lean under this administration than had previously been used by EPA. The fact matter is that EPA had performed hundreds of lean events, so hundreds of process improvement events uh, over the last decade or so, all with uh, varying uh, degrees of success. But the fact is that there was a clear adoption of the principles associated with lean. There was a clear appreciation for what lean had to offer. Uh, what we're doing now differently is that we're using a system that's been specifically designed to identify small problems and resolve small problems before they become big problems. I was talking earlier about visual management. So that is the, the, the most important component to our management system is that when managers can see when an individual project uh, is getting slightly off track, uh, they can resolve the problems associated with that or help their staff resolve the problems associated with that project getting slightly off track at the time it's getting slightly off track rather than finding out a year later two years later, that this project that, had, that was not in the line site of the um, manager uh, had gotten significantly off track and maybe even months, if not years, off track. Uh, so the system has been designed to make sure that um, both staff and managers and leaders are, be able, are able to see those small problems, whether it be problems in uh, workflow or being problems in overall performance, uh, whether or not those problems can be uh, resolved um, at their infancy uh, and before they become huge problems. The fact that matter is, is that um, each and every time I ask uh, about a process or ask how we're doing in a certain part of our operations, um, I'm surprised by the number of backlogs 
uh, that we have as an organization. And, and backlogs meaning those um, processes uh, that are so behind that we have a backlog of you know products, services uh, that aren't being aren't being met, uh, whether it be permits that need to be performed, whether it needed whether it's state implementation plans that need to be approved, whether it's inspections that need to be performed, new chemicals that need to be reviewed, existing chemicals that need to be reviewed. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that um, if we aren't monitoring each one of those products um, or applications as they're going through the, the process that we expect to meet certain deadlines, um, if we're not monitoring that closely, um, they can become big problems over time in the systems design so we can see them early. So it sounds like a much more robust and interactive risk mitigation and management approach that you've embedded in these processes to try to identify kind of the weak links as you think through your decision. Exactly. But it's, it's also it creates the ability for um, staff uh, to raise those small problems and identify those small problems without blame. Uh, if the system exists, that they're just following the system, they're just putting their work um, on a board so it can be visual to ever, visible to all. Um, it's not about an intrusive manager coming in and asking them on a, on a daily or a weekly basis how they're doing on each and every project. It's just that's what the system is. Everyone's doing it. Um, it's part of the DNA. Then. It's beca- exactly because part of the DNA of the organization where everyone just knows that, hey, stuff happens, things get behind schedule, and my manager's job is to help me make sure that when things do get off schedule, that we're working together to get them back on schedule and figuring out what the root cause is as to why that's not happening. Because if it's chances are, if it's something that's keeping me from doing my work, it's also keeping my, you know, my companion across the across the the work hall uh, the same the same problem. I want to go from general uh, to specific, and in particular, you mentioned the permitting pre-construction permit decisions. I understand it's like a. 480 days uh, it might take to, to get it, something like that. Could you be specific about the root causes as you see it? And what are you doing to modernize the permitting system, accelerating the time to get a permit? Yeah, so uh, s- studies have shown that um, most processes that have not gone through a process improvement event or have not been uh, reviewed for um, wasted time in a process, uh, we'll find that about 80% of the time it takes to perform a process is spent with no one doing any work on that process at all. Um, there are other types of waste associated with the process, but the biggest type of waste or the most prevalent type of waste uh, is what we call waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that time that a approval just sits on someone's desk uh, because they don't have the energy, they don't have the time, um, they're waiting for an answer from somebody else. And what we find is that uh, when you do a review of a process, you map out that process and every small step about the, of that process, that those small amounts of time it seems it takes for each of those um, approvals to happen or each one, each one of those steps to um, um, survive uh, a waiting, quote-unquote waiting episode – uh, that if you eliminate those waiting episodes, you eliminate those times in which things are just waiting with no activity being performed on them, you can reduce the amount of time it takes to perform a process significantly. Uh, so it's not about uh, cutting corners. It's not about working harder or working faster. It's just about identifying those situations where 
um, an application or inspection or whatever the case may be, it's just sitting there with no one doing any work on it. And it's eliminating those situations when no one's doing any work on it. Or when it's being sent back uh, to the applicant, for example. So a lot of the time wasted is when um, we want something from an applicant and we know that we want something from an applicant and we don't get that from the applicant as part of the process. Well, that's not necessarily the applicant's fault. Um, if it's happening over and over and over again, um, it may be a problem with the application itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of our time is spent looking at you know, whether or not we're getting the information we need from applicants uh, in order to do our job. And if not, um, what could we be doing about it in order to make it better? Great. And so you've also described a renewed emphasis on cooperative federalism. And part of that renewed effort, as I'm understanding, includes the essentially loan and grants to the states. And you've also described an emphasis on outcomes. So tell us now a little bit about how the agency is going to really kind of proactively pursue this effective oversights of the EPA grants programs. Yeah, so uh, one of the the strategic measures in our strategic plan is specifically um, um, put in place to deal with that very issue. We plan on increasing the number of grant commitments uh, achieved by states, tribes, and local communities. And that's quite not going to be an e- that's not going to be an easy task. Um, it really uh, boils down to a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is to make sure that uh, the grants that we are, um, are providing are aligned with uh, state priorities and tribal priorities, uh, so that uh, when um, a state or tribe or a local government um, receives a grant, that they have more than just EPA's um, oversight motivating them to meet the commitments. <clears throat> so it's really making sure that when we're writing the grants that we're making sure that they're, they're aligned with pre-existing priorities um, for anyone who's receiving the grant. But I will say that, that the, the other uh, opportunity uh, in just simply making sure that we do a better job of overseeing grant commitments um, is not going to be as easy. Uh, and this is, uh, in, in my view, and having worked with a number of state agencies, uh, it's one of the uh, shortcoming of, of government, and that is that um, we don't do a terribly good job of making sure that the commitments that are being made uh, are being fulfilled. Because we put this on the strategic plan, uh, it means that we're going to be paying more attention to it. I just simply don't have uh, an answer as to how we're going to do it. Uh, I think the fact that we've acknowledged that it's an issue that we want to resolve um, speaks to the fact that we uh, want to make um, that process better, just like all the other processes. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be a challenge. So one maybe a different kind of related area is just EPA's overall compliance monitoring, right? And so when we look at the strategic plan, there are areas, for example, in technology. Um, one example is developing smart mobile tools to enhance the effect of state, tribal, and EPA inspectors, and as well as supporting advanced monitoring technology. So can you describe a little bit whether it's now with, you know, compliance assurance programs or other areas, you know, what innovative efforts are EPA, is EPA pursuing to support these programs? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think I'll start off by um, describing um, the two outcome measures that we're using to um, evaluate the effectiveness of our compliance uh, assurance program or compliance enforcement program. 
Uh, one of them is uh, simply the compliance rates. Uh, it'll be very difficult for us to measure the effectiveness of any of the tools that we use uh, if we're not able to uh, find some way of evaluating uh, the compliance rate uh, associated with um, a very, uh, various uh, regulations or permits. Uh, that until we know that you know X percent of drinking water systems are com- in compliance, or that Y percent of air permittees are in compliance. Uh, that we will not know whether or not uh, the specific deterrent tools like enforcement are serving the general deterrents that they also are intended to serve. So uh, it's it's actually a pretty big lift for us to figure out a way of monitoring on a consistent and regular basis the compliance rates associated with uh, the various um, – entities that we regulate. So we really w- will be looking to, you know, technology to help us with that. How do we know in real time whether or not someone that we regulate is in compliance with a requirement of ours? Uh, and then how do we aggregate that information to see, you know, whether or not there's something we should be doing uh, to change a regulation or change an enforcement tactic in order to make sure that as many people are as compliance as can be? The other um, measure is how long it takes for an entity to return to compliance after we identify they're out of compliance. And that's regardless of the tools that we would use to do so. Uh, so, so once again, it's becoming as creative as we possibly can and using all the tools that we have available to us in order to make sure that when a facility um, or an individual is out of compliance with a requirement, that we're getting them back into compliance as quickly as possible. Uh, and we simply don't have a means by which measuring that today. In the interim a bit, there's constantly emerging technologies that can support kind of these various areas within EPA. What are you, what do you see are some of the challenges in keeping up with those emerging technologies? Yeah, so one of the the issues that frustrates me the most um, have, after having arrived uh, at EPA um, is our inability uh, to keep up with the rate of change that's existing uh, within uh, the world today. Um, it's not just technology. Um, it's new chemicals. It's new contaminants. As uh, the world continues to change and accelerate in its change, EPA and other all other federal uh, agencies, for that matter, need to be, find a way of becoming more agile uh, in our and adaptive in regulating uh, those those new chemicals and those new technologies. Um, we can no longer take years to figure out whether or not a new technology or new chemical is dangerous to public health or the environment. Um, we should be t- being able to do that in a matter of uh, weeks, if not days. Uh, government needs to find a way of becoming much faster uh, in its identification of the dangers associated with the new technologies and the new chemicals that are associated with those technologies. Federal regulations impose enormous cost on American businesses and working families. Given your perspective, how is the agency seeking to reduce the burden of the regulatory process? So this is one area where the administrator is leading by example. Uh, So he's actually going out and speaking to those that we regulate, uh, listening to them firsthand. Uh, And when he hears of uh, regulations or issues that uh, he has heard are overly burdensome or unduly burdensome. He brings it back to the agency for us to evaluate whether or not there's something we should be doing about it. 
uh, while still being protective of public health and the environment. So really quickly, before we get into my last question, uh, what are you doing to improve um, the agency's workload analysis to more effectively prioritize and allocate limited resources? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So even though we're not doing a true workload analysis, mm-hmm. through the deployment of a lean management system, um, we will be able to identify the work that's being done uh, throughout the organization and also the reasons why important work uh, is not being done. And as we identify those opportunities, uh, resources may be something that we need to uh, pay more close attention to. The reallocation of resources, whether it be moving people around, uh, whether it be cross-training. But until we actually go to where the work is being performed and start evaluating the work as it's being performed and actually seeing the work as it's being performed, performing a workload analysis at this point um, would not be as effective or as fruitful as if we were to go actually go and see the work and see the real reasons why we not, may not be achieving the targets or the performance that we, we would like to achieve in whatever part of the organization we're looking at. Wonderful. So, uh, you know, Henry, thank you for coming in today. I want to ask you one last question. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, f- first of all, I would say that I have not once uh, in my over 20 years of public service ever thought that I made a bad decision. There's no doubt, and this is no secret to anybody, that I could be making a lot more money uh, doing the work that I that I do in the private sector. But the fact of the matter is that there is no greater opportunity to actually make a difference, in my view, than being in the public sector. So I guess the advice that I would I would give is that um, is to find uh, a part of government uh, that you are passionate about, um, whether it be environmental protection, uh, building roads. Uh, protecting children, whatever your passion is, find a government uh, agency. And the work at at the beginning does not matter. It's just getting in the agency and your passion uh, will uh, lead to opportunities uh, to make a difference. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you for coming in today, uh, taking, taking some time out of your busy schedule. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Kirsten and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. My co-host today from IBM was Kirsten Schroeder. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is artificial intelligence, AI, and how has it evolved? What challenges does AI present? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Professor James Hendler, co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity, on the next Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.